you. I'd love for you to reach, grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you're not familiar with the book of Ruth, it can be hard to find because it's tucked in between a couple of big books in the Bible. You're going to find it right between the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, I can make it a little easier on you because I can tell you this starts on page 222. So if you're using one of our black pew Bibles, you'll find our text today beginning on page 222, the book of Ruth. We've been in the series this summer entitled Legacies. We've been looking at figures, people of faith who have gone before us, who have something to teach us about how to live our faith today. And so we've been basically looking at a different figure, different person each week. That way they kind of all stand on their own two feet. So if you're here for this week and you mix next, you still will get the full content of the message. And I've enjoyed our season because we've spent a lot more time in the informal time of the summer just actually reading Scripture together. And that's going to be true today as well. We'll read a substantial portion of the book of Ruth together. Now, I have a confession to make. Generally, I look at the book of Ruth and I see it as being theological light, meaning there's not a lot in there. I don't believe I've ever preached a sermon before from the book of Ruth. Taught it a couple of times when I used it for in, in, in small group Bible studies. It's kind of an, an, a nice, easy fill, and there's some good things to lift from it. And I think you're going to see some of the greater depth of it today as we read it together. There certainly is a wonderful passage in Ruth, Luke, in Ruth chapter 1 that gets used often in weddings because it's a wonderful reflection of the depth of the commitment that's needed to make marriage really work. But what I want us to do today is I want us to read the book of Ruth together. And in that, for us to step back and see what it really does have to teach us beyond just kind of what we see as the foundations of its message for us. And first of all, a little context. Ruth Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So let's kind of fit this into biblical history. Moses had already led the people of God out of of, uh, Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, They'd entered into covenant with God and they had come literally to the edge of the promised land. He handed off or transitioned leadership to Joshua who took them into the promised land. And they took possession of the promised land. They were supposed to be at that time a theocracy. God would be their king and he, they would be his subjects. God would directly rule through them and to them. Didn't work out that way. The scripture tells us over and over again in the book of Judges that because God, it was only God who was their king and there was no earthly king to make them do anything, that each one just kind of did what was right in his own eyes. So as a nation, they went through cycles of living in the presence of God, then rebelling against God and doing what was right in their own eyes, wandering away from God, experiencing the consequences of that and the discipline of God. Perhaps this famine was one of those. Then God would send a deliverer to them as they called out to Him in repentance. And then they would experience a time of peace again before they decided to do what was right in their own eyes again. So it's in this environment where there's a lot of instability, where people are personally responsible for walking with God, that we find this story of the book of Ruth. It's a remarkable story. Mostly we look at this text and we say it has two major truths to teach us. One, it shares a little bit with us about the genealogy of Jesus. Because he followed from the lineage of David, King David, and 
the child that's going to be born to Ruth and her new husband Boaz, whose name is Obed, was actually King David's grandfather. And so from that, we think one of the reasons why we see the significance, the theological value of this book, it shares with us a little bit about the origins of King David and through that, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. It also says something about the universal grace of God. How a Moabite woman, somebody who's outside of the people of God, can actually literally become the grandmother or the great-grandmother of King David. And it shows how God is at work in all of the nations. And so we have that message, but there's far more to it to that for us today. And we're not going to be able to get to everything, but I think you're going to see some real value from this text as we read through it. I'd invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read for us. And I'm going to read substantial portions of chapters 1, 2, and 3, and just a little bit of chapter 4. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. And a man left Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons to live in the land of Moab, for a while. Moab is to the east of the Dead Sea, and there was a because of some rivers that flowed through the region, there was a sliver of fertile ground there, and obviously in this period of famine it continued to produce harvest. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the land of Moab and they settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died. And she was left with her two sons. So her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpha, and the second was named Ruth. And they lived in Moab about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. You might say that Naomi is the female Job of the Old Testament. Instead of it all happening in one day, it took a season of time, but she found herself absolutely destitute. Everything that had been precious to her was taken except for her two daughters-in-laws. Verse 6, she and her daughter-in-laws prepared to leave the land of Moab because she had heard it she had heard of Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them with food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Things are better back home. Let's go home. But then it strikes her that home isn't really home for her daughter-in-laws. So we pick up the story in verse 8. So she said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show faithful love to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord enable each of you to find security in the house of your new husband. She kept, she kissed them and they wept loudly. Essentially what's happening here is she's traveling back to Judah. She realizes there's no future for her daughter-in-laws there. So she urges them to go home and start a new life with new husbands. But Naomi, in verse 10, it says, No, they said to her, We will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Return home, my daughters. Why would you want to go with me? Am I able to have any more sons who become your husbands? And that was the custom of the day. When one brother died without children, another brother would marry his widow and raise up a family, the firstborn of this new wife, raise up a family in the name of his brother. So Naomi says, Yeah, I got no more sons for you. So she said, they can't become your husbands. And so she continues the thought in verse 12. Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters. My life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord has turned His hand against me. And they wept loudly. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth 
clung to her. Naomi said, look, your, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, do not persuade me to leave you or to go back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. And your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do this to me and even more. If anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped trying to persuade her. So the two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. And when he entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited. It's not like it wasn't the excitement of joy, but they created quite a stir, if you will. Bethlehem wasn't a huge village. So she arrives and, and when they arrive, says, the, the town was excited about their arrival and the, and the local woman said, can this be Naomi? And it was almost like a gasp. You know, because they probably looked terrible. You know, they, they, first of all, they had a hard life in Moab. They've been on the road, and they arrive back, and, and, and it's not with a lot of uh, dignity. You know, it's just the two of them just trying to make it all the way back to Bethlehem. There's no camels, there's no, there's no, but it's just verse 20. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I left full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has pronounced judgment on me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the land of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess. And they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So they're back in Bethlehem. And the challenge now is, we're home, or I finally arrived in Ruth's case at my new home. Now how are we going to live? We're going to eat? How are we going to do this? So we pick up in verse chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side named Boaz. He was a prominent man and of noble character from Elimelech's family. Ruth the Moabitess asked Naomi, Will you let me go into the fields and gather fallen grain by behind someone who allows me to? Naomi answered, he said, go ahead, my daughter. Now, really what's going on here is, is back before the days of food pantries, back before the days of food stamps, what God had set out in the provision of his law was the way that you took care of the poor was that when you harvested your field, you were going to leave some of the harvest behind unintentionally. It was just the nature of the way they harvested. They were prohibited from going back and trying to pick up the harvest they had left behind. That stuff was left for the beggars. So if the beggars came out to the field, they could come through the field after it had been harvested by the regular harvesters, and whatever scraps were left, they were able to pick up. So what Ruth says to Naomi is, let me go out into the field, and, and let me just beg among those who are harvesting. Somebody surely will say, okay, you can, you can work in our field, and I'll just pick up the scraps that are left behind. Because that's what the custom was. That's what the law was. And that's what Ruth was prepared to do. She was prepared to beg. In our day, we might say, let me head out to the dumpster, see what I can find to eat that people have thrown out or left behind. So Ruth left and she entered the field to gather grain behind the harvesters. She happened to be in the portion of land belonging to Boaz, who was from Elimelech's family. He's been introduced to us already in verse 1. He's a man of noble character. We see that begun to come out now. When Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, he said to the harvesters, The Lord be with you. And they said, The Lord bless you, they replied. So Boaz asked his servant who was in charge of the harvesters, Whose young woman is this? Who's out there working in my field? You know? And they, the servant answered, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. 
she came up and asked us, will you let me gather fallen grain among the bundles behind the harvesters? In other words, can I have the scraps? And she came and she has remained from early morning until now. In other words, she's been working hard, except for when she took a little rest in the shelter because the sun can get pretty intense in that area of the world. So then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my young women. See which field they are harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. So basically what he's saying to her, you know, that what you're doing is dangerous work because people aren't always nice to the beggars, especially when the beggar is a young woman who can be abused. So he says, I want you to stay with my people. And I've told my people to keep an eye out for you. In fact, we, you can actually participate. You can enjoy the provisions that are made for my workers. When you need a drink, get one. And so in verse 10, she said she bowed with her face to the ground and she said, why are you so kind to notice me? Although I am a foreigner. She wasn't expecting this. And Boaz answered her and says, Everything you have done for your mother-in-law since your husband's death has been fully reported to me. How you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth. And how you came to a people you didn't previously know. May the Lord reward you for what you have done. And may you receive a full reward from the Lord, God of Israel, under whose wing you have come for refuge. What a great statement. Say that we've come to take refuge under the wings of the Lord. Verse 13, My Lord... She said, You have been so kind to me, for you have comforted and encouraged your slave, although I am not like one of your female servants. At mealtime, Boaz told her, Come over here and have some of the bread and dip it in the vineyard in the vinegar sauce. So she sat beside so she sat behind the beside the harvesters, and he offered her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left over. She basically had a little doggy bag she put together to take home to Naomi. And that comes out later in the in the text. When she got up to gather grain, Boaz ordered his young man, says, be sure to let her gather grain among the bundles. And don't humiliate her. In other words, he's saying, leave some of the good stuff behind for her, all right? And don't bother her if she starts to take it. He says, pull out some stocks from the bundles for her and leave them for her to gather. Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gathered grain in the field until evening. And she beat out what she had gathered, and it was about 26 quarts of barley. Pretty good haul for a single day for a beggar. She picked up the grain and went into the city where her mother-in-law saw what had been gleaned. Then she brought out what she had left over from a meal, and she gave it to her. Then her mother-in-law said to her, where'd you gather barley today? And where'd you work? <laughs> she's amazed at what she's actually been able to, to gather. She said, may the Lord bless the man who noticed you. And, and in verse 19, it, Ruth says, the name of the man... I, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. And Naomi said, May he be blessed by the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living or the dead. This man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. And so from then on, as we read through the rest of chapter 2, she stays with Boaz's harvesters until the, the wheat and the barley harvest are finished. Maybe a month, six weeks. In other words, a little bit of time. And she's finding a way to make a living to provide for her and her mother-in-law. Verse 3, emphasis shifts. Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I find security for you so that you will be taken care of? Here's kind of a thought. We're playing, this, this is my home field. I need to help you figure out how you can su- succeed here. So she's saying, you know, I, I need to fi- help you find a husband. I know how it works here. So let me help you find a husband. So, so in verse 2, she picks up, Now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his young women? In other words, he'll work out all right. So this evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing room floor. So wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. 
In other words, get dolled up a little bit, you know? Go down to the threshing room floor, but don't let the man know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had instructed her. And after Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. Then she went in secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Now we would probably call that breaking and entering. And we would dial 911. But that's not the way it worked in these days. Basically what is happening here is Ruth is proposing to Boaz. She is requesting for him to extend his blanket over her and to bring her into his household as his wife. So verse 8, at midnight, Boaz was startled. His feet were cold, right? That'll wake you up, right? At midnight, Boaz was startled. He turned over and there lying at his feet was a woman. And we can tell from the text it's very dark. So he says, well, who are you? She says, I am Ruth. Your slave, she replied. Spread your cloak over me, for you are a family redeemer. Basically what happened, and, and what they're referring to here, is that when, when, a fa- when, a, when a, the male line of a family died off and there were no heirs, and there was no other brothers or sisters to marry the widows and raise up children in the brother's name, there were extended family members who kind of had a rank as to where they fit in the line to be the one who redeemed or saved the name of the family. Elimelech's family name is about ready to die off. There are several people in the village who are in a position to save the name of Elimelech's family. Boaz is one of those. And so he has the opportunity to marry Ruth and the firstborn child or son would be the son of her, her, her first husband who would be the, the, therefore the grandson of Elimelech and his name would be saved. Verse 10. Here's Boaz. We kind of get the impression he's older than she is. And except for the fact that he's wealthy, he's not much of a catch. Probably short, fat, and bald. You know, you kind of get that impression. So he says, May the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before. And he's referring to the way she's stuck by Naomi. Because you've not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. In other words, you, you, pitch the old, you pick the old fat guy, you know. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say, since all the people in town know that you are a woman of noble character. What a great thing to be known for, huh? Yes, it is true that I'm a family redeemer, but there is a, fee, a redeemer closer than I. Stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. And the way the text reads that just before daybreak, when people still can't tell, he's concerned for her reputation. He doesn't want her to look like a, a loose woman. So he gets her up before dark and sends her home before anybody recognizes her. He swears those who were there to... to um, if they knew what what had happened, to keep it quiet. And he gives her a large amount of barley to take home to her mother-in-law. And so the next day, we pick up the story in chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by. All business transactions took place at the city gate. That's where they took place. They always done in the witness or the presence of the elders of the city. So Boaz called him by name and asked him to sit down. So he went over and he sat down. And then Boaz took ten men of the city's elders and said, sit here. And they sit down. In other words, he's saying, I got a deal I want to conclude here. You guys need to come and witness this. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who had returned from the land of Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of my elders, of the elders of my people. 
If you want to redeem it, do so. But if you don't want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't any other than you to redeem it and I am next after you. And so the guy said, I want to redeem it. Basically what's going on here, women really weren't allowed to own land. So Naomi needed to get rid of the land that had belonged to her husband. And if one who had the first right to purchase it was this redeemer. So Boaz is saying, if you want the land, buy it. The guy says, yeah, I want the land, I'll buy it. Then Boaz in verse 5 starts to read the fine print to him. It says, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also get Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the name, the man's name on his property. So what he's saying is that if you buy the land, you have to take Ruth as your wife. When she has a son, the land will become his. And it will pass back into the family of Elimelech and to his sons, um, Malon and Kilion, who have already died. So basically the guy would be taking his money, purchasing land, and then the value of that land would pass on to another family's inheritance through Ruth. And the guy said in verse 6, says, I can't afford that. That'll ruin my inheritance. So he says, I reject it. So Boaz is ready to take action. And I just want to read this last section because I think it's just so interesting. He says, At an earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in, in Israel. So the redeemer removed the sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. I wonder what the registry of deeds look like. Just a just series of sandals, you know. And you just got, anyway, sorry. So Boaz and Ruth are married. And let's pick up with verse 13 of chapter 4. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he was intimate with her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, the women of the village, in other words, praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name be famous in Israel. And isn't it going to be? He's going to be the great, he's going to be the grandfather of King David. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi took the child, placed him on her him on her lap, and took care of him. And the neighbor women said, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. What a great account for us. There's lots of things to see and hear about trusting in the Lord and prayer and etc. But I want to just offer some thoughts to you today from this. I mean, stemming out of the fact that Ruth was probably, you could look at her and say she is the female Job of the Old Testament. Life got really hard for her. Are there some lessons that we can learn from the story of Naomi and Ruth about how to handle difficult times in our lives, troubled times in our lives? You know, and I could give you a long, long list, but you know what? When things start to fly apart, it's not the time when you're ready to sit down and look through a long, long list. I just want to give you a few few thoughts that leap from the passages that we should embrace as people who are going to go through troubled times, because we will go through troubled times. One of the promises Jesus made to us was that life on this planet, even as a child of God, will be hard at times. Many of us know that reality. Sometimes it's a lot harder than we would ever wish it to be on anyone. So how do we get through these difficult times? And I just want to offer a few points to you. And one of the things that really struck me as I, as I read this text was that, you know, for many of us, we can't see the trouble coming and we're not prepared for it. Now, that wasn't the case with Elimelech. I mean, they're sitting down to the dinner table and there's not as much food in the bowl as there used to be because there's a famine in the land. He can see the freight train coming. He knows what's coming and he's discerning and says, we got to do something. And they react to the situation. 
many of us, we cannot see the trouble coming. The spiritual markers are there. The, the, the indicators to us that things are starting to go awry are flashing by us, but we never slow down long enough to recognize the fact that trouble's coming. Sometimes we just choose to ignore them on purpose. Sometimes we're just too busy to see them at all. And this happens all the time to us. Spiritually, it happens to us. You know, we, we, we go through a long period of time, and then we wonder, how did I get here spiritually? I feel so far from God. The things that I'm doing aren't even of God in my life. Yet, along the way, there were lots of indicators that we were headed for trouble, and we ignore them. Stopped reading the Bible as frequently. Prayer became more of a struggle, and then it just became a non-existent. You know, fellowship just wasn't a priority anymore. Worship and service, and, and we just kind of get off the track. We, we ignore all these things. It happens to us relationally. Way too many marriages have gotten to a place where they say, how did we get here? Yet all along the line, there were indicators that the wheels were starting to come off. But they just kept plowing ahead, not realizing they were headed for trouble. And one of the first things that we need to do, and you can could, you could make connections physically. You know, when we're in our middle-aged, middle in the time when we really need to prepare our bodies for old age, we're so busy, we don't have time to get to the gym. And then when we're in our 70s and having a hard time walking, we say, man, I wish I'd gone to the gym when I was in my 50s. You know, we, 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 just, we need to be discerning and recognize when the trouble is coming. Second, when you get into the midst of the troubles, and there's lots of different ways to say this, but I, I'm going to simply say, seek God. And let me use the imagery out of this text. Don't look for what takes you to Moab. Look for what takes you back to Judah. You know, what, what Elimelech did was pragmatic. It was expedient. It was rational. I'm in a place, there's no food. Let's go to a place where there is food. We make all kinds of decisions like that in our lives when we get into trouble. It's what seems to be expedient, what it seems to be practical, what seems to be pragmatic. It's what I see it's what I can see to fix the problem. There was only one problem with that. He was leaving the place of God and going to the place without God. The Moabites were actually descendants of Lot. They had wandered away from the things of God. They had become Baal worshippers, participating in all the fertility cults. It was a godless culture in terms of Judaism. Moving away from God. But there's food there. Moving away from God. But there's food there. When we get into times of trouble, we need to seek God. And sometimes the answers don't look the most practical to us. But they are the way to make... They, but they are the right decisions to make. You know, ultimately, for Elimelech and his family, moving from Judah to Moab just literally took them from the frying pan into the fire. When we get into times of trouble, we need to seek God. We don't need to necessarily go with what we think are the most practical answers, what will work, etc. You know, and, and again, I can make all kinds of, of, of connections, but I'm just going to allow the Spirit to do that with you. The third thing, and what strikes me probably most powerfully out of this text, is how important it is to do what's right, even in times of trouble. When Ruth stood out there on the side of that road with Naomi, she was was headed to a land where she was voluntarily entering into exile. Her chances of any kind of a good future were virtually nil. Because who's going to marry a Moabitess in Judah? Everything said, turn around and go back home to your parents and find another Moabite husband. But she knew in her heart of hearts it was just wrong to live a, leave an old lady on the side of the road with nobody to go with to go back home and to rebuild life. And she would not leave. She did what was right. Naomi, in chapter 3, when things were beginning to turn the corner, she knew that she had a responsibility to her daughter-in-law to help her build a life in Bethlehem. And she did what was right and sought for her long-term security. 
Boaz, throughout the text, he does what's right. There's this young woman of noble character working in his field. He can ignore her, but instead he extends his grace to her and helps her out. He does what's right. When the time comes for her to, for him to act on his, his right of redemption, to bring her into his family, he does what's right and offers the possibility to his, to the prior redeemer before him. He does what's right. In the midst of difficulty, it is incredibly important to do what's right. Three rights might make a three lefts might make a right, but two rights don't make a wrong. We need to do what's right. Did, did you guys get that? Did I go that too fast? You know, because if you go left, left, and left, you're actually headed right. You know, but uh, sorry. Anyways, <laughs> too much coffee this morning. There we go. We get into times of trouble and we panic. We don't respond according to our values. We just react in the moment. We need to do what's right. And and this is where the place of character is incredibly important. Throughout the text, in chapter 2, verse 11, when when Boaz is first meeting Ruth, he says, I've heard about you. I've heard about you. I've heard everything that you've done for your mother-in-law. I know what you're like. Later, he refers to her as a person of noble character. Then later, the women of the village says, your daughter-in-law, she's worth seven sons. You know, the role of character and, and digging yourself out and being the exit strategy for getting out of trouble is just a powerful word for us. Just a couple more quick points. I'm amazed by Ruth's teachability. She's the one who's stuck by her mother-in-law. She's the one who's doing all the provisions. But when her mother-in-law says to her, listen, just do everything that I tell you to do. What does Ruth say? That's the way the old generation used to do it. We do it a different way today, you know? She says, what does she say in chapter 3? She says, I will do everything that you say. You know, one of the things that's so important about getting ourselves out of trouble, transitioning through troubled times, is to stay teachable. What we usually do is we get angry. And angry and being teachable don't go together. But staying teachable. We need to be careful who's teaching us. You know, some of us, we want to turn to the horoscopes and to Dr. Phil and everybody else to tell us how to solve our problems. We need to be careful who's teaching us. But we really need to be open to change. And lastly, and Naomi struggled with this in the text, but at the end she could see it, is that God always has a power to redeem. God always has the power to redeem. She struggled with that in this text at times. But at the end, they said, listen, the Lord's provided you with a redeemer. With a redeemer. You know, we, we sometimes we get into trouble. And since we see it as though it is, as a situation where God has abandoned us, we cease believing in the redeeming power of God, the ability of God to save us, to change us in the midst of our circumstances. And so we take things into our own hands. We live our lives as people who confess a belief in God. We live our lives as practical atheists, as though God is not at work. And there's a wonderful invitation in this text for us to trust in the redeeming power of God. When times are hard, when we're experiencing times of trouble, those are the moments for us to exercise our greatest moments of faith, trusting in the redeeming power of God to create a better future, both here and for hereafter. Let's pray together. God, thank you for teaching us out of Ruth today. You know, Father, we read this and we telescope it. But this is a decade and more hardship. And yet, Father, in your power, you saw them through to a wonderful, joyful ending. God, we know that if we'll trust in you and we'll transition through troubled times as people of faith who seek you and respond to you, God, who trust you, that our journey will ultimately culminate in joy. God, thanks for teaching us. Father, show us what's right and give us the courage to do it, no matter what's going on around us. For this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite our